we're in the midst of a series called This is the Church. Basically, we're taking a look at ecclesiology, the study of the church. What is it that makes the church a church? Well, what is the, the responsibility of the leadership? What is the responsibility of the members? What is it that makes us the people of God, the people of God? So we've got a few weeks left in this series. And, and this morning, I want us to take, take a look at Ezekiel chapter 13. Uh, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 16. And I want to invite you, I know you just sat down and we're working you today, but I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Ezekiel chapter 13, beginning at verse 1 and reading through 16. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. It will be on the screen over here to your right and my left. This is what Ezekiel writes. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel. Who are prophesying say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination hear the word of the Lord this is what the Lord God says woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing your prophets Israel are like jackals among ruins you did not go up to the gaps or restore the wall around the house of Israel so that it might stand in the battle on the day of the Lord they saw false visions and their divinations were a lie they claimed, this is the Lord's declaration when the Lord did not send them. Yet they wait for the fulfillment of their message. Didn't you see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you proclaimed, this is the Lord's declaration, even though I had not spoken? Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. You have spoken falsely and had lying visions. That's why you discovered that I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and speak lying divinations. They will not be present in the council of my people or be recorded in the register of the house of Israel. And they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord God. Since you have led my people astray by saying peace when there is no peace. And since when a, flim when a flimsy wall is being built, they plaster it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those plastering it with whitewash that it will fall. Torrential rain will come, and I will send hailstorms plunging down, and a whirlwind will be released. When the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, where's the whitewash you plastered on? So this is what the Lord God says, I will release a whirlwind in my wrath. Torrential rain will come in my anger. Hailstorms will fall in destructive fury. I will demolish the wall you plastered with whitewash and knock it to the ground so that its foundation is exposed. The city will fall, and you will be destroyed with it. Then you will know that I am the Lord. After I exhaust my wrath against the wall and against those who plaster it with whitewash, I will say to you, the wall is no more, and neither are those who plastered it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw a vision of peace for her when there was no peace. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we consider this idea of the responsibility of a pastor. Pray that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. For we are ready. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now this morning I want us to take just a minute and consider consider the idea of the work of a pastor. The work of a pastor. Some of you might have thought that was an interesting text to choose for the work of a pastor, but I promise I'm going to try to break it down and, and show you why that has relevance. But before I do that, uh, by way of introduction, let me say this. Some of you 
I may recall who Warren Harding was. He was born in 1865, passed away August 2nd of 1923. If you don't know who Warren Harding is, you're probably not alone, but let me share with you who he was. Warren Harding just so happened to be the 29th president of the United States of America. And if you didn't know who he was, that's okay. It's okay that you didn't recognize the name. There actually might be a reason for that. Harding is often known as the most unforgettable president who's ever lived. Many would argue that the reason he's so unforgettable, or that he's unforgettable, is because, I'm sorry, forgettable. He is forgettable. It's because he did nothing significant at all. In fact, his entire campaign slogan was return to normalcy. Return to normalcy. Right? No grand gestures, no big promises like, let's just get back to normal. So on the heels of World War I, Harding didn't really want to do anything extravagant. He didn't want a big plan. He didn't want uh, big promises and campaign speeches. He just said, let's just get back to the way it was. He wanted an easy time. But what's interesting is many looking back on Harding's life believe that the reason he's the most insignificant president, the reason he's often easily forgotten, it's because Harden didn't understand his job. He didn't understand the significance of being the president of the United States. In fact, historian Eugene Trani notes that Harding failed, in most opinions, to impact the nation, listen to this, simply because he saw the role of president as largely ceremonial. He saw himself as neither a caretaker nor as a leader. He just avoided issues whenever possible. Journalist Christopher Conley noted about Harding, he said, after admitting to his friends that he felt overmatched by the job of president, Harding gave his cabinet free reign and treated the presidency as a ceremonial post with no real oversight. And so what we had in our 29th president is we had a president of the United States who didn't understand what the job of president entailed. And as a result, he hired a bunch of his friends to be his cabinet members and basically let them do whatever they want. Now, you can probably imagine a lot of bad things happened. Members of his cabinet were convicted of unethical business deals, of taking bribes, of using federal resources to make themselves rich. Now, Harding, for the most part, he stayed clear of all those misdoings. Now, some would argue that people didn't really look into him because in 1923, Harding mysteriously died. Now, the speculation is that his wife poisoned him to try to protect his reputation. And so he had a heart attack. But they decided not to do an autopsy to find out if that was the case or not. So as it goes, it sounds like Harding was poisoned by his wife. You have to be doing a stellar job to be poisoned by your wife. But he stayed clear of misdoings. But many attribute the corruption of his cabinet to his inability to perform the task that the American people had elected him to perform. Or you could say his lack of knowledge of the job of the President of the United States. And, and the reason I tell you this is because I think it's a great illustration of the fact that there is a great danger of being in any role and failing to understand what that role requires of you. Or failing to understand what is expected of you or what is needed from you. And this is not only true in the president of the United States, this is true for teachers, for bankers, for businessmen. But this morning, I want to show you and argue that this is specifically true. This is particularly true for pastors as well. Just as we talked about with Harding, 
If pastors don't understand what it is that they are called to do, there can be immoral outcomes, there can be hard seasons when people in positions of authority fail to understand how their authority is to be used. And so this morning, I want to continue the discussion that we began last week on the role of a pastor. Last week, we looked at the qualifications of a pastor. You might remember that I gave you a definition we were going to work with last week. And so the definition that we had was that poimen, and that's the Greek word for pastors or elders, elder, pastors or elders, basically those who will oversee the flock, so appointment are individuals set apart by God to oversee the flock of God in a specific location. So we dealt with the first part last week, that these are individuals who are set apart by God. But this morning, I want us to focus a little bit on the second half of that definition, where it says that they're set apart by God to oversee the flock of God in a specific location. And so we need to ask the question of what does that mean? Well, what does it mean to oversee the flock of God. In essence, we're going to try to answer the question of what is the primary responsibility or primary responsibilities of a pastor? What defines overseeing a flock? And in order to do that, I want us to take Ezekiel 13 to consider this passage when God condemns the prophets for failing to shepherd well. Now, I have to say this at the beginning. Some of you might have gotten nervous when I went to the Old Testament to talk about a New Testament office. And I want to say up front that there is not a one-to-one -one comparison between prophets and pastors. They are not the same thing. But what is interesting is that in the Old Testament, the prophets and the priests and the kings were charged with shepherding the people of God. The same thing that pastors are called to do in the New Testament. So there is a correlation, but it's not a one-to-one -one comparison. So let me just put it plainly. I'm not a prophet. I keep trying to be, but I, but I keep picking them wrong, okay? I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet. I'm not called to be one, but I am called to be a pastor. And I want to look at Ezekiel 13, look at the failings of the prophets, and hopefully glean a little bit of information to what it means to be a pastor. What is the responsibility of a pastor? And, and again, in our introduction, let me just tell you why this matters. And I want to be, I'm going to be upfront and transparent with you for a moment. The pastorate and pastors, I can't speak about across the world, but I can speak about this country, the pastors and pastorate and the pastorate it's in crisis right now. It is an absolute crisis. Let me read to you some very real statistics. 90% of pastors report working 55 to 70 hours on a given week. And 50% of them, one out of every two pastors, feel like they are unable to meet the demands of the job. 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed or highly stressed all the time. 90% of pastors feel fatigued and worn out every single week. 70% of pastors believe that they are grossly underpaid. 40% of pastors report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 78% of all pastors in the United States were forced to resign from their church. 63% of them, it's happened to them at least twice, and the most common reason was because of a conflict between them and a church member. This statistic breaks my heart. 80% of pastors right now will not be in ministry 10 years from now. And only a fraction 
will make it a lifetime. On average, seminary-trained pastors, that's me, that's, that's me, seminary-trained pastors last on five years in church ministry. 100% of Reformed and Evangelical pastors surveyed have a colleague or a friend who they know personally who has left the ministry because of burnout, church conflict, or a moral failure. I have three friends. 91% of pastors have experienced some form of burnout in ministry and nearly one out of every five pastors say that they are on the verge of quitting. Now, I'll be honest, I hesitated to share some of those with you, and the reason is not because I didn't want you to know them, it's because I don't want you to take it easy on pastors. The tendency is to hear those things, right? Like, all right, we're going to love our pastor well, so what we're going to do is we're going to leave him alone. We're not going to call him when we need him. We're not going to allow him to do the things that God has called him to do. And I'm not asking you to do that. No pastor is asking you to do that. But the reason, there are actually two reasons why I share these statistics with you. The first reason is because a pastor or someone who is considering being a pastor needs to understand what his job actually is. See, I would argue the reason so many pastors are feeling burned out is because they think Things are their responsibility when it's not actually their responsibility. What is it that God actually expects from pastors? And pastors need to know this so they know what they can say no to. See, often pastors, and I speak knowing the temptation all too well, we feel the need to do and be an expert on everything related to the church. I feel the temptation to try to be an expert when it comes to counseling, to be an expert when it comes to finance, to, to be an expert when it comes to discipleship, an expert on musical worship, an expert on sound engineering. But a pastor cannot be an expert in all of these things, nor does God expect them to be. Do you? Now, I get it. I get it. When there is a need in a church, especially a small church, and when people don't step up, pastors assume that it is their responsibility to step in and fix the problem. And some of y'all right now are trying not to laugh at me because you know that's who I am. You know that's me. But pastors, I need to remember what it is that God has called me to and what it is that God will actually hold me accountable for. But here's the second reason I shared all those statistics with you. The people in the church need to understand what they should and should not expect from their pastors. You see, often the burden that pastors feel is not a result of church members leaning on them in the areas where they are called to serve. It's when members expect pastors to do and be things that the Bible does not expect pastors to do and be. So as we walk through this passage in Ezekiel and see the failings of the prophets of Israel, I hope to help us all, including myself, answer the question, what is the work of the pastor? What is it that a pastor is responsible to do? And here, here's the first thing that a pastor is responsible for. And this, this will serve as a foundational issue for all of the others. First and foremost, a pastor is responsible to love. To love. Look back at what, what Ezekiel prophesies there in, in, in verse 4. He says, You prophets, or your prophets, Israel, are like jackals 
among ruins. Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals among ruins. So what Ezekiel is doing here, like many of the prophets, right? So let's let's talk about just the book in general. Ezekiel is calling the people to repent. So the whole repent. The whole book of Ezekiel is Ezekiel, the prophet of God, going to the people of God and calling them to repent. At the time when Ezekiel is writing this, the people of God, Israel, are in captivity in Babylon. And the reason they're in Babylonian captivity is because they've sinned against God, they refuse to repent, and God is judging them for their sin. And so, so this is where they find themselves. And, and what God does is he raises up Ezekiel because he needs someone, some prophet, to call out the sin of the people and call them to repent. So in chapter 13, after having addressed the people, and Ezekiel's already touched on the kings and he's touched on, he's touched on the priests, he, he now turns his attention to the prophets of God. And in chapter 13, he's addressing not necessarily the sin of the people, though it's been addressed. He's addressing the sin of the prophets, the people who are responsible for shepherding Israel. And in verse 4, Ezekiel calls them out for a failure to love. Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals among ruins. And John, John Taylor helps us understand this statement when he writes that being like jackals among ruins is a picture which, which suggests that the prophets have no real concern for the people among whom they live. They burrow among the foundations without any regard for the welfare of the place, intent only on making dens for themselves. And then Taylor goes on, he says, such action is not only foolish and irresponsible, but it's morally reprehensible. And Ezekiel uses the strongest word to describe their folly. Foolish is the Hebrew word. And we see that in the verse that precedes it. So in Ezekiel 13 verse 3, this is what the Lord God says, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. And what Ezekiel is revealing is that the prophets failed in one of their most fundamental tasks for shepherding the people. They failed to love. And like the prophets, a pastor's ministry must be built on a foundation of love. Of love for God and of love for God's people. We talked about this some last week when we considered the qualifications of an elder. Do you remember that? The first qualification of an elder. Does anybody remember what it was? You can say something. No. It was desire. Yeah, the first qualification is to desire the work. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. And we talked about that the pastor's goal, right? It can't be a desire for, for a platform. It can't be a desire for a following. It can't be a desire to have everyone love them. It, the desire has to be for the work of ministry. Because we talk about the fact that it's easy to love ministry. It can be hard to love the people you minister to. See, if you get everything else right as a pastor, and you miss love, you've missed it all. But can I tell you something, church? If you get everything else right as a Christian, and you miss love, you've missed it all. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain 
nothing. And then he says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not easily angered. Love does not keep a record of wrong, but it delights in the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things. Love hopes all things and endures all things. And then Paul says, and love never ends. And he adds, but as for prophecy, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. Now I like this part, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You see, at some point, church, we just got to start defining things the way that Jesus defines them. And the mark of maturity is not how many books you've read. The mark of maturity is not how many degrees you have. The mark of maturity is not based on the job you have. The mark of maturity is not on how many kids you have or how long you've been a parent. It's not about how active you are in the church. The mark of maturity is not your political party. The defining mark of maturity for everyone is the measure of your love. Whether or not you love freely. Whether or not you love selflessly. But I like how Paul says it. He says there was a time when he thought like a child and spoke like a child and he acted like a child. See, it's interesting. See, we often think love's the childish thing. No, no, we just got to get the good theology. We got to be able to argue what the Bible says. We got to be able to defeat those people that think differently. That's what maturity loves. Loves the beginning point. But once you get more mature, you got to set aside love. Set aside love and just be a jerk because your theology is real good. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. But I can name names. <laughs> but for Paul, he says, no, no, no. The childish thing was not love. Talking like a child meant talking without love. Walking without love. Living without love. He said, but then I finally grew up, and when I grew up, I started to love. A lack of love will affect everything. And this is especially true for Pastors And these prophets in Ezekiel 13 cared only about themselves, their own protection, burying themselves in the ground. And so they failed to shepherd the people of God. They failed not only to love, but it affected all of the other responsibilities. And so here's the second responsibility. Love is the foundation building on that. The responsibility of a pastor is to teach. Is to teach. Look back at verse 2. Ezekiel says, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. Now this is interesting. Because the failure of the prophets in Ezekiel 13 was not a failure in the act of teaching. What I mean is they were teaching. That wasn't the problem. The failure came in what they taught. See, there's, there's a contrast here in verse 1 and verse 2. 
There's a contrast between Ezekiel, the faithful prophet, and the false prophets. Because in Ezekiel chapter 1, we can't overlook how this chapter starts. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. That's what Ezekiel writes. The word of the Lord came to me. So why did Ezekiel speak? Because the word of the Lord came to him. Well, what did he speak? The word of the Lord came to him. Ezekiel is speaking on behalf of God. And what is he speaking out against? Well, that's verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying. So pause there. He is prophesying against the prophets who are prophesying. But why? Well, that's the end of verse 2. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. You see, the problem is not that the prophets weren't teaching the problem is what they were teaching, or more specifically, the source of their teaching. The prophets that Ezekiel was addressing were prophesying things that they made up. They weren't listening to God. They weren't relying on God. And they were acting on behalf of God without God. That's not a prophet. That's a false prophet. That's not a shepherd. That's a wolf in sheep's clothing. But make no mistake about it, church. That's not just relegated to ancient Israel. There are shepherds today who stand in pulpits and preach stuff that they've made up, that they think you need to hear. So let me just say it like this. Those who are called to shepherd the flock of God must understand that the chief way they do that is through teaching while simultaneously understanding that they don't have anything worth saying. Did you catch that? That that the chief way that shepherds shepherd, they have to understand that the chief way that they shepherd is by teaching while simultaneously understanding that they don't have anything worth saying. What I'm trying to get you to see is this, that what I want pastors or those considering the pastorate, what I want to be reminded of myself is that the church doesn't need skilled orators above all. The church does not need gifted, persuasive speech above all. The church does not need lofty speech above all. What the church needs is the word of God. Now, I'm not saying you can't pursue those things. I want to grow as an order. I want to speak better. I want to not stumble over my words like I stumbled when I said the word order. But that's not what you need primarily from me. What you need is the word of God. And I said that I was trying to build. You might have missed your amen. But that's okay if you don't know that to be true. Because I do know that you need the word of God. Because when God speaks, things happen. When I speak, nothing happens. Like my kids ignore me all the time. I don't have the power to control with my voice. I want it sometimes, especially with my children. Sometimes with you. But... When I speak, nothing happens. But when God speaks, things happen. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. Because when God spoke into nothing, something showed up. Because when God opened his mouth, planets formed. And then God spoke again, and land and water came into being. And then God spoke again, and plants started showing up. And he opened his mouth one more time, and living things started to come into existence. I'm talking about fish started swimming, and birds started flying, and creatures started crawling. But the pinnacle of creation came when God formed man from the dust of the earth and opened his mouth again and breathed life into that man. And maybe you're tired of hearing that. Michael, you always go to that and talk about God spoke, and things came to create to be. Well, that's fine because I've got more for you. When God spoke, 
He spoke to Abraham and an everlasting promise was given that God would create for himself a people. And when God spoke to Moses, deliverance was as good as done for the people of God in captivity. And when God spoke through the prophets, redemption was promised despite the sin of the people who continued to rebel against their their God. And then John calls our attention to the greatest word ever spoken, the word made in flesh. And what I want you to see is that you don't need me to have persuasive speech you need the word of God there are plenty of people who speak eloquently there are gifted communicators who can stir up all kinds of emotions but our confession as the people of God our belief is that of Peter's in John 6 when he says Jesus where else will we go you have the words of eternal life I don't have them I never will but I know the one who does A pastor has the responsibility of communicating God's word to God's people, not their own words for their own gain. I like how Amos says it, Amos 3.8. Like, we sleep on the minor prophets sometimes, God. Amos says it like this. He says, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. So who will not prophesy? Mm. What Amos is getting at the listen, the speech that we need is the speech of the lion of Judah. Because when he speaks, things happen. This points us back to why the qualifications matter for a pastor. Because we want men in pulpits who are under the influence and direction of God. Again, Taylor helps us here when he writes that the truly inspired prophet was to be dominated by the Spirit of God. So much so that his own spirit was in constant subjugation to its influence. That's a fancy way of saying what Paul says in Titus 1.9, when he writes of the elders there, and says that they should be, they should be holding to the faithful messages taught so that, so that the elder will be able to both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So pastors have a responsibility to love, and one of the chief ways that they will love is by teaching the Word of God. But here's the third responsibility of a pastor. A pastor has a responsibility to pray. To pray. Look at at verse 5. Ezekiel is condemning the failure of the prophets. And he says, says, you did not go up to the gaps or restore the wall around the house of Israel so that it might stand in battle on the day of the Lord. Now this is is an interesting picture that Ezekiel is painting because he's using a wartime illustration. It's, It's interesting. It's an illustration of a prophet being willing to go up on the wall to find the gaps. Some of your translations might say breaches to find the holes where the people behind the wall are most susceptible and then to fill those holes. To stand in the gap for the people. But it's interesting because even though he uses a wartime illustration, the enemy is not an evil enemy. It's actually not an enemy at all. It's God himself. The people outside, or the one outside the wall, is God. And what 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 Ezekiel's getting at here says, listen, there's some holes in the people. There's some weakness. There's some, there's some gaps that, that Satan can come in. And you've got to tighten those things up. You've got to intercede for the people. Because if not, the wrath of God will come upon you. And Ezekiel's saying, and the prophets should have been willing to stand in the gap for the people, and they didn't do it. Why? Where were they? They were like jackals hiding in the dirt. 
See, in this illustration, there are breaches, gaps in the wall, weaknesses. And the people are in danger of facing the wrath of God. And it is a shepherd's responsibility to step in. This idea comes up again in Ezekiel 22 when God says, I searched for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I might not destroy it, but I found no one. This is the same idea that the psalmist knows regarding Moses in Psalm 106. He says, so he said he would destroy them if Moses... His chosen one had not stood before him in the breach to turn his wrath away from destroying them. You know what he's talking about? When Moses was up on the mountain and they were down there worshiping a golden calf and, and God said to Moses, and Moses, you, just might want to, you might want to dip because I'm just going to start a new people through you because they're acting a fool down there and I'm going to go kill them. Yeah. And Moses says, well, hold on, God. Do you remember the promise you made to Abraham? God said, yeah, I remember that. He says, you can't destroy them. And God said, you're right, I am a faithful God. God was never going to destroy them. He's giving us a picture of what a mediator should do. But Moses stood in the gap between the people and between God. Now again, we have to remember that what I mentioned at the beginning, that there's not a one-to-one correlation between Old Testament prophets and New Testament pastors. And one of the reasons there's not a one-to-one correlation is because something happened between the Old and the New Testament. It's a little bit significant to our faith. You see, we're in the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets stood as literal mediators between God and the people. Now, Jesus is the perfect mediator. See, Hebrews 8, 6 says, And Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is a mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. And so for those of us in Christ, we know that we will not face the judgment of God, not because we have a good pastor in the pulpit, but because we have a great Savior on the throne. We will not experience the wrath of God because Christ is sufficient, and we have direct access to the Father because of what Christ has done. But... Similar to the Old Testament, that does not mean there are not seasons in life when you don't need someone to intercede for you. And part of the responsibility of a pastor is to intercede through prayer on behalf of the church. I'm going to put it as plainly as I can. God expects me, not as a side note, not as a, a small part of my ministry, but at the top of the resume, He expects me as your pastor to pray for you. And I delight in that. Now there are three reasons I want to give you why of all the things God could have called a pastor to do, with all the administration that needs to happen in a church, all the organization that needs to take place, with all the ministries that need volunteers and people that don't show up when they're supposed to be volunteering, of all the concerns, with everything that goes on in the life of the church, why would God place such a high emphasis on prayer? Three things. Three reasons. First, because it's good for the pastor. It reminds us that as gifted as we may be, as seasoned as we may get in ministry, as mature as we may grow, the church will never rest on our shoulders. The church does not exist because of the pastor. The church does not succeed because of the pastor. And prayer reminds a pastor of just how limited and dependent they are on God. We need God to move in the life of the sheep. We need God to move in the life of the church. And prayer reminds a pastor, you can't do it all, but you know the one who can. But second, prayer is good for the congregation. It's good for the people. Because a pastor who prays is a pastor who understands that his role is to serve the sheep. 
He understands that what the flock needs more than a good pastor is a great God. And so a, a, a pastor who prays is a pastor who understands that, that the sheep need God more than they need that pastor, and that's a benefit to the sheep. But here's the third reason why of all the things God could have made a pastoral responsibility, he chose prayer. The third reason is because prayer changes things. Prayer changes them. I'm be honest, sometimes we struggle to believe that. Sometimes I struggle to believe that. But I know that we could go around this room and there would be some testimonies this morning of the fact that the prayer has changed some things. And maybe that's not you. Well, let me just tell you then there, there will come moments in your life. And I don't care how long you've walked with God, how mature you are, how well you know your Bible, how skilled you may be at problem solving, how many resources are at your disposal, there will come a time when your back will be against the wall. And none of that stuff will get you out. There will come a time when you face moments so hard and so painful and so trying that the skill of your pastor, the number of degrees that he has, the longevity of his ministry will not be enough to get you through. But when somebody is willing to start praying, things start changing. Because we have a God that wants us to cast our cares on him. And we have a God who has a track record of making a way where there was no way. When we pray, things happen. Moses found himself there with the Red Sea in front of him and an army behind him and the people started losing their mind. But Moses said to the people, the Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Now we look at Moses and say, man, that's some boldness right there. But I picture Moses right there like a duck on water. Right? He's got this good public look, but his little legs are flapping. He had no idea what in the world was going to happen. Well, how do we know that? Because of what happens in the very next verse. We know that he was praying because God then speaks and says, Moses, why are you crying out to me? And then he proceeds to tell Moses, I got this just like I said I would. We don't know what he was praying, but we know he was praying. Daniel found himself there when praying got him into a mess and then praying got, praying got him out of a mess. They tried to trip him up by making it a capital offense to pray. But what did Daniel do? He kept on praying. And that prayer led him right to the lion's den. And rather than believe that God had failed him, Daniel was so confident in his God that he didn't give up on prayer when it didn't look like there was a way out. And when the lions looked him in the eyes, David prayed one more time and God shut their mouths. Esther found herself there. After being taken from her home and then taken from her family and having to perform for the king to win his favor, Esther never lost faith in her God. And when the plot to kill her and her people came to light, knowing that death seemed inevitable, Esther started praying. And God heard that prayer and used her darkest days for a moment of great deliverance for his people. I'm trying to tell you that there will come dark days and hard moments. There will be doubts and confusion and all you have is prayer. But what you have is enough. Because prayer changes things. So it makes sense then that God would want the people who shepherd his flock to be a people who understand the value of prayer. I'm not trying to puff puff up your pastors, but one of the things that we do, because we understand how desperately we need prayer, we pray through our membership list regularly. 
Every day I take some of you by name and pray for you. Because I know that on my own I got nothing to offer you. But I know the God that you need. Here's the final responsibility of a pastor. Not only must he love, not only must he teach, not only must he pray, but finally, a pastor must lead. Must lead. Look at, look at verse 10. As God deals with the failures of the prophets in Israel, he says this. Since they have led my people astray by saying peace when there is no peace, and since when a flimsy wall is being built, they plaster it with whitewash. See, the failure of the prophets was a failure to lead. They failed to shepherd the flock. Now this verse actually teaches us a few important things about leadership. See, first, it teaches us that shepherds, if they're going to lead well, they have to know where they're going. See, in this verse, it's clear that the shepherds didn't end up where God intended for them to be. It says that they went astray. It means that there was a destination and the prophets didn't lead the people there. And the reason for this is because the prophets who Ezekiel was confronting had forgotten that their goal was to lead the people closer to God. That's, that's the goal of the prophet. To help draw the sheep toward the chief shepherd. To push for holiness and to avoid sin. A, 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 a leader has to know where they're going. Now, there are a lot of different ways to do this, different strategies to get there. But ultimately, the pastor needs to know where he's headed. He needs to know what the goal of his ministry is. And I'm just going to tell you, the goal for me with Newbury Church is not to see this place busting out the doors with people. That'd be great. It's not to say we have the best program and that we have, we have the best people. It's, not that, it's that the people that God brings into this place, that at the end of my life, I can look back and say, I helped them look a little bit more like God. That's the goal, that they understood holiness a little bit better because I was faithful as a shepherd. I'm not saying it would be bad if we were busting out the doors. But the goal is holiness. But even more, not only should shepherds know where they're going, shepherds have to know who they are leading. Now notice that Ezekiel, as he speaks, recounts God saying, since they had led my people, Astray. Now this is important. Please hear me. Because sometimes we get tied up on this. A pastor's job is not to lead a neighborhood. A pastor's job is not to lead a city. A pastor's job is not to lead all Christian Christians. A pastor's job is to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to them. I'll put it as plainly as you can. So if you have misconceptions about who I am, I'll tell you now. I'm not a pastor to the West End. I'm... I'm not a pastor for the West End. I'm not concerned with leading the West End. I'm concerned with leading you, the covenant members of Newbury Church. Now, hopefully some of y'all coming from the West End. We want the gospel to go forth in the West End. That's why we're here. As a Christian, I care deeply about that. But as a pastor, I'm not a shepherd to this community. I'm a shepherd to you. Again, I'm not saying I don't care about the community. That I, I don't want to do pastoral things for the community. I will. But I know who I will ultimately give an account for. And it's not the people out there. It's you and here. This is a large reason why we believe membership matters so much in a church. It reveals who is actually a part of the local flock. Who the shepherds of that flock are. It'd be crazy if we didn't have membership and I didn't know who I'm actually shepherding. 
Now here's the third thing that this voice verse teaches. Not only does a shepherd need to know where they're going, not only does a shepherd need to know who they're leading, but shepherds have to have boldness. And we can't forget the context here. Stay with me, I'm wrapping up soon. Israel is in captivity because of their sin. They are actively experiencing the judgment of God. Okay, you got that? Like the fact that they're in Babylon has got active judgment on them. And rather than call the people to repent, rather than declare you are not right with God, what do the prophets do? They say peace when there is no peace. And what Ezekiel is getting at is that the people wanted to hear a certain thing. They wanted to know that how they were living their life and their sin and their rebellion, pursuing the ways of, of the world and of Babylon and folding into their culture, that all of that was perfectly fine. They wanted a shepherd. They wanted a prophet to say, you can look like them. You can sound like them. You can act like them. And God is good with them. The people wanted to hear a certain thing, but what's even more heartbreaking isn't that they wanted to hear it. It's that the prophets were willing to say it. So I'm going to call it like I see it, family. There will be times in leading when you might not want to be led. There will be times that for us as pastors, it will require a boldness to tell you you're wrong. But you should want a shepherd who's willing to do that. You should want a shepherd who will push you and call you back to holiness when, when we start to see you straying or, or, or call you back to God when we see you going a different direction. So shepherds have to be bold to lead. The call for shepherds to lead, though, we're going to get into this in a couple weeks, so I'm not going to dive too deep. But the call for shepherds to lead, also by implication, is a demand for you to be willing to follow. I say we struggle with this as the people of God in this country. We don't like the idea of authority. We just don't. Right? We love the rugged individuals. I'm going to do me, you do you, and as long as, as long as it doesn't conflict, it is what it is. Often, many people in the church see the pastor as a self-help expert. They see the pastor as a therapist that might offer some strategies that you get to wade through and pick out what you think is most helpful. But what we often don't consider that is that by coming into the covenant fellowship with a body of local believers, we are saying, we are committing to the fact that the pastors of that flock are spiritual authorities in your life. That's why God in his word communicates to the author of Hebrews, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable, unprofitable for you. Right, the call of scripture is for the sheep to understand that there is this aspect of spiritual authority in a pastor. And I'll be honest, even me saying it to you, like I feel kind of weird about it. But it's just what the Bible teaches. And as our sweet sister said once, sometimes we just got to trust Jesus that he knows what's best. Like your pastors understand the weight of that authority, and there's time when we have to exercise that authority. That's not in every aspect of your life, but it is in regards to your soul. Because we will stand before the Lord and give an account for your soul. 
Again, this is not to say that the pastors are faultless. This is not to say that we are the final authority. Please hear me say that. Pastors are not the final authority on your soul, but they are an authority. The Bible takes precedence over pastors. The Spirit takes precedence over pastors. The Son and the Father take precedence over the the pastors, but we can't get away from the fact that pastors are spiritual authorities in your life. So what does that mean practically? Well, maybe you should be making major spiritual decisions without talking to the pastor. Maybe. I don't know. I can't can't get ahead of myself. Two weeks. Come back in two weeks. Pastors must lead. And pastors must be allowed to lead. This does not mean that you cannot hold us accountable. You have to. We talked about that last week. You are responsible for the people you submit to. But once you submit, if you see the qualifications, the marks of a faithful pastor, you submit to them and let them be authorities in your life. So this is a pastor's responsibility to love, to teach, to pray, and to lead. And I want to just make clear when I went through and kind of waved through scripture of what are the responsibilities of a pastor, these weren't the top four that I found. These are the only four that I found. And the reason I'm saying that is because this is what we are responsible to do. There are other things that need to take place in the church that we are not responsible to do. Now you could argue we have leadership and oversight over all of that. Yeah, yeah I get that, but there are things that we are not responsible to accomplish in church. You know, I think if what happened in Acts 6 happened in most American churches today, the pastor would be fired by Monday morning. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 6? So the church comes to the 12 disciples, right, functioning as pastors and overseers as, as some are being established. And they say, listen, some of the widows aren't being taken care of, specifically the Gentile widows. So, so the church was doing what the church should do and giving out food and caring for the widow and the orphan, right? They're being the hands and feet of God. And they go to the overseers of the church. They go to the shepherds and they say, listen, some of the, the women aren't getting taken care of. They're not getting food because they're Gentile. And you know how, they, how, how the disciples responded to them? What does this have to do with me? Should I stop teaching and preaching to wait tables? Now, they're not saying that that's an insignificant part of the life of the church, but what they are saying is what they're called to is a greater responsibility. Man, if y'all asked me to do something and I can't have told you what I might have wait tables for you, let's be honest, how many churches would fire their pastor Monday morning? But see, they're painting a picture for us that in order for shepherds to be faithful shepherds, they have to understand what is their responsibility and what is not their responsibility. Now, what they did do was lead well and tell them how to go about organizing themselves to make sure that they were cared for. But what I'm trying to get you to see is that if a, that, that a pastor's responsibility is to love, to teach, and to pray, and to lead. And so you should be trying to free up your pastors to love, to teach, to pray, and to lead. Now, you might also be thinking, well, there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done in the church. Who's going to do that stuff? I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) Because in loving, in teaching, in praying, and in leading, the pastor can do what they are called to do in Ephesians 4.12. To equip you, the saints, to do the work of the ministry. To build up the body of Christ. It is your job to do the things in the family of God. That pastors are not called to do. It's your job. There's a lot more I want to say, but I'm going to bring this thing to a close. 
And let me say this. While pastors are called to a specific work, the hope of the church is not in the pastor. And I want you to hear that. The hope of the church is not in the pastor. The success of the church is not dependent on the pastor. I find this fascinating that after all God says in Ezekiel to the prophets, to the priests, and to the king, after all the warnings, after the calling for the shepherds to actually shepherd, what God doesn't do is give them a bunch of new shepherds to try again. What God does is he promises a better prophet. He promises a better priest. He promises a better king. God promises not more shepherds, but the chief shepherd. Because when we get towards the end of Ezekiel, or this section, in Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 11, we pick up on this. It says, for this is what the Lord God says, See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the strays and bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. And I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. And so what God promises when the prophets fail was not a bunch of new prophets. It was one. It was Jesus. He is the hope of the church. And God came through. God kept his word from what he promised in Ezekiel 34. Because when Jesus showed up, the people were still in great darkness. They were still in their sin. They were still in their rebellion. Just like each and every one of us. And the chief shepherd appeared. And he lived like a prophet should live. He lived like a priest should live. He lived like a king should live. And he did it all without sin, without spot or blemish. And he was the only one by nature deserved no wrath. And yet Jesus willingly died on a cross to redeem a broken people lost in darkness unto himself. He's crucified and raised from the dead. And he invites those wayward people like you and me to find hope and salvation in him and in him alone. And through the cross and the empty tomb, not only does Jesus offer salvation to you, but he has established his church. And pastors are meant to represent him well by doing what he has called them to do. So what is the work of a pastor? What should you expect from me? What should you expect from Pastor Lance? What should you expect from any person who serves in that role? That they would love well. That they would teach the Bible faithfully. That they would pray for you and that they would lead you well. That's what we need from pastors. And I want to remind you like I did last week and I'm done the very fact that God established his church and gave pastors to him is evidence of his great love. 
He did not save you and leave you to figure it out on your own. But he saved you and he is continuing to walk alongside you. He's giving you the spirit. He's giving you brothers and sisters. He's giving you, he's giving you shepherds all so that we might live faithfully. To serve well. To honor the God who has saved our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the constant gifts that you give us. God, grace was greater than anything that we could have asked for. The very fact that though we've rebelled against you, though we've sinned against you, that rather than destroy us, out of your abundant love, you sought to save us and sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we should have lived but can, and to die the death that we deserve to die. God, you've loved us so much. And as amazing as that gift was, God, you keep on giving. You establish your church, a place for fellowship and encouragement, to bear one another's burden, a place to be shepherded, Lord. You've given the church pastors and leaders and those who, who want to honor you by exercising authority for your glory in the life of the church. So God, I pray, I pray that as we continue on in this series examining what is the church, that you would use these truths that we are hearing to do two things. God, first and foremost, to help us love you more. But second, God, that we would be a faithful church. When it's easy and when it's hard. When the world tells us we should be this or that, that we would look to you and believe that what you have established is better, God. It's better. Because you've never failed us yet. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.